book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel, uh, chapter 4. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 4. So we're moving along to the next chapter in our study. We're going chapter by chapter by chapter. And these early chapters uh, are recounting the stories. If you're just popping in for the first time this morning and hadn't been here for the previous uh, chapters, these early chapters of Daniel are, are recounting stories from the life of Daniel and his, his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And, and those four guys um, were all uh, from the southern kingdom of Judah. We, we gave a little history in the first chapter of how after Solomon died, King Solomon, generations down the road, the nation of Israel split in two between north and south. And the northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. The, the Assyrians in time overtook the northern kingdom in 721 B.C. And uh, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians took over the southern kingdom of Judah, of which Daniel and his three friends were part. And in 605, around 600 B.C., they were exiled from their homeland, along with all the, all the Jews in Judea. Exiled from their homeland, Solomon's temple was destroyed, and, and then all the Jews found themselves scattered all over the Babylonian Empire. And they scattered them all over the empire so that they couldn't speak the language of their neighbors, and they couldn't rise up and fight back or overthrow their conquerors. And, uh, and, and so most Jews found themselves scattered all over the the country, all over the kingdom. But Daniel and his three friends found themselves working in the palace of the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. I, I, I said the first, uh, one of the earlier weeks, like, part of the reason I love the book of Daniel is I, I, I like to try to read um, the Bible autobiographically. Like I, I try to put myself in the position of somebody that I'm reading about in the scriptures. I have a hard time putting myself in the position of Daniel. Like I cannot even... I can't even fathom what that might have been like to be working in the palace of a foreign and wicked king, you know, and trying to be faithful to, to God in the midst of that. But he did. But Daniel and his three friends were given new names. The Babylonians were trying to give them new identities, make them forget who they were, trying to make them who they wanted them to be. Gave them new names. Daniel's new name was Belteshazzar. And... Nebuchadnezzar will say in this chapter that we're going to study today, he gave him, he, he named him Belteshazzar uh, to be named, so Nebuchadnezzar named him that to be named after one of his gods. All their new names called on Babylonian gods. Their former names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, all called on the name of the Lord. They gave them new names to call on the Babylonian gods. Daniel was Belteshazzar. Hananiah was Shadrach. Mishael was Meshach. Azariah was Abednego, um, and they worked in the palace, and, and what we've seen in the, in the first three chapters are just God doing, God doing miraculous things on behalf of Daniel, uh, and, and on behalf of his three friends. I mean, last week they were thrown into a fiery furnace, uh, and we've seen Nebuchadnezzar witness these things with his, his own two eyes, and yet defy God again and again and again and refuse to humble himself before God. Well, today we come to the fourth chapter, and with this, we come to the last words we have in Scripture about Nebuchadnezzar. 
from Nebuchadnezzar about Nebuchadnezzar. And what, it's, it's, it's funny that having defied God again and again and again, I'm not saying that Nebuchadnezzar gets saved in this chapter, but it is funny that even still with a rebellious heart, the last words we have from him in Scripture are praising the King of Heaven. God brought him to the place that he wanted him to be, uh, which he'll say several times, three times, in fact, in this chapter before you read it. Uh, he's gonna, he's, God, in this chapter, plans to bring Nebuchadnezzar, as proud as he is, to a place, as he'll put it, uh, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. So that's, he says that three times, and at, by the end of the chapter, that is the place to which Nebuchadnezzar is brought. This chapter, if you've been here, is going to feel a lot like chapter 2 because it's going to revolve around a dream that was given to Nebuchadnezzar and the interpretation of the dream. But it's full of, of really good and rich truth for us to think about. So let's, let's read the chapter, um, and, uh, and then we'll study it together. So beginning in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples... So by the way, uh, this is a letter. You're gonna get, it's going to get filled. That's why he introduces himself. Now he's saying who this letter is to. So this is a letter that, he's gonna, that he sent to his kingdom. King Nebuchadnezzar... To all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show you the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty are His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in my bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me. Again, this is feeling like chapter 2. That they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. By the way, that right there is how you know that Nebuchadnezzar did not fully repent and trust the Lord. He, he recognized that God, he, by the end of the chapter, he's recognizing that God is the most high God. But he still says in verse 8, he, he refers to Belteshazzar, he was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God. So he's still a polytheist, even at the end. Anyway, and I told him the dream, saying, verse 9, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, again, polytheist, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field 
found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the, de- the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, i.e. Daniel, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached the heavens, and it was made visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its abundant, uh, fruit abundant, and in which was food for all under the beasts of the field of the uh, found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the end of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of, of, the, of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven times periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. And you can tell the Holy Spirit was in him. I mean, if you've ever read Nehemiah, And Nehemiah merely looked sad in the presence of the king. And the king said, what's wrong with you? And (laughs) why do you look sad? And it said, Nehemiah, in that moment, and I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said, here's why I'm mad. And why did he pray? Because he knew that merely looking the wrong way in the presence of a great king 
could mean punishment or death. Imagine having to say, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, this is what your dream meant. <laughs> You're about to get cut down, son. Anyway, <laughs> verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Who talks like that to themselves? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Gross. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the, time, at the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I... Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those are the last words we have from Nebuchadnezzar in Scripture. It's pretty sweet. Um, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll walk our way through it. Father, um, I echo Joe's prayer earlier, Lord. I, I pray that you would help us to Behold wonderful things in your holy word. Father, our confession of faith to you this morning, as we do every week, is that this is what we just read. This is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, clear, necessary, and sufficient word. It's truth without any mixture of error. And Father, even though that's the case, we are blind to its truth apart from your help. So, Father, I pray that you might, through your Spirit today, give us eyes to see the truth that is here, even if it's truth that we've seen before, even if it's truth we've heard before, and know deeply within our hearts, I pray that you would remind us of them in a fresh way. It's like Peter said in the New Testament, even though you know these truths and are established in them, my aim is to remind you of them again and again for as long as I live. So help us to see even old truths in a fresh way this morning. Help us to understand them. Give us minds to understand the truth clearly. Give us hearts to embrace the truth. Give us wills to live out the truth. Father, please give me the help that I need to teach this word faithfully. 
And again, give us all ears to hear, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've read the chapter. Um, I, I've summarized this a message as praising the king of heaven because that's, that's exactly what he does. Those are the last words out of his lips is praising what he calls the king of heaven. Um, and I just want to walk our way back through this, this chapter. And I think as I read it and thought about it again, I think it's, it's a good reminder to us at root. This chapter is a good reminder to us of who God is and a very honest reminder of who we are. So uh, I hope that as we, as we look at the truths that are here today, that we will leave today uh, like Nebuchadnezzar, like it left Nebuchadnezzar, but even in a, in a more sincere way, praising God for his grace and for his power. Um, and so while, it's, interestingly, this is in the book of Daniel, while Daniel does make an important appearance in this chapter to give the interpretation of the dream, he's not the main character. The main character is Nebuchadnezzar and God. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think here's four... four um, Uh, important truths that are sort of relayed to us in this story. Here's what I want us to see. So first of all, the chapter is going to begin by showing us God's grace. And it's shown in a way in Nebuchadnezzar's life that we may not be used to thinking about God's grace in this way, but it's important that we do um, and be grateful for. So we're going to think about God's grace, how it appears in this chapter first. We're going to see God's patience displayed in, in a very clear and unmistakable way. We see that especially in, in uh, Daniel's interpretation of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. We also get a really good dose of our sinfulness, <laughs> it, particularly in one verse. When we see what Nebuchadnezzar did with the grace and patience that God had shown him on top of the, the things that he'd already seen. So God's grace, God's patience, our sinfulness. And finally, we see, as almost in every chapter of Daniel, God's sovereignty in the final outcome with Nebuchadnezzar. So let's start at the beginning of the chapter and see what it says about God's grace. And I think, I think this is the, the main theme in the, in the first part of this chapter. Like I said, this chapter is actually a letter that he wrote to everyone in his kingdom after, after he had recovered from the craziness that God had sent him into. Literally, the craziness that God had sent him into and caused him to lose his mind and go animal-like <laughs> for a period of time. After, and had, after he had brought him back to his senses, it's after he had been through that that he wrote this letter to all his kingdom, to, to literally to all his kingdom, before all the people, praise God for who he is, that he is the Most High, that he does rule the kingdom of men. And he wanted to make it known. And I'll just... Just that simple fact alone is, is worth pausing for a minute just to make some sort of application. Um, because this is on the, heel, on the heels of God doing something remarkable in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Even if he didn't come to saving faith, he, 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 it was remarkable. The power of God was remarkable. The sovereignty of God was remarkable. And he couldn't avoid it any longer. He just made me go crazy like an ox. I ate grass and never cut my hair or my fingernails. And I, all of a sudden, I'm back and my kingdom's back. Like, he couldn't deny God's power and sovereignty. He had just come through something really remarkable. And what did he want to do? Tell everybody. I'm going to write a letter and send it to everybody and make them read it. Right? I think 
That's why many Christians, ourselves, myself included, just by way of application, are quiet about our faith in witness. Because we've lost our sense that God has done something remarkable in our lives. Like we, We've lost our, our daily sense that something amazing has happened in my life through Jesus Christ. You know, that he has forgiven me of my sins. If you have any awareness of how great your sin is, he's forgiven me of all my sins. He's given me the hope of eternal life. Those, those words are words that get spoken in church a lot, especially in this church. It can start to wash over you like bath water. You don't even notice it. Those are Crazy amazing things I just said. Give you the hope of eternal life. It's utterly amazing. And if we woke up every day with the slightest sense of amazement of that reality in our lives, Jesus would be more, a more natural part of our daily conversation. You know? Even a wicked guy like Nebuchadnezzar couldn't avoid that. And he sent a letter to all his kingdom. I got to tell you about this. But back to the chapter. As Nebuchadnezzar begins telling what, what God had did, he starts off in verse 4 saying, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Now, as we begin to, we're, we're thinking about how does God's grace appear in this chapter. So if we're going to see how God's grace appears in this chapter, this is where we have to start. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. We've said it many times, even Daniel says it in this chapter, that Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world. I mean, he had everything he could think of. Like, Daniel even says it. He says it in verse 22. Daniel even recognizes of Nebuchadnezzar in verse 22. It's not on the screen, but in your Bible. Nebuchadnezzar, your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven. Your dominion to the ends of the earth. So, it's true. He was the most powerful uh, man in the world. He could, he could have everything he could have possibly desired at any moment in time. And I believe, just again, applying the truth that we're slowly coming across here, I believe that's one of the reasons why, after all of the miracles after all of the signs and all of the wonders that God had done in his presence. I mean, the last thing we read was him throwing three guys into a fire, a fire so hot that it killed the guys who threw them into that fire. And they walked around in it with somebody else and didn't even come out, not even smelling like smoke. Even after seeing crazy amazing stuff like that, even after all of that, Nebuchadnezzar saw absolutely no need to acknowledge God or his sovereignty or his power in his own personal life, let alone submit to him as his Lord. Why? Because he was at ease. He was at ease in his house, and he was prospering in his palace. What's, what's, what's the application to us? Well, we may not have houses and palaces 
and everything at our disposal that we could possibly want, like Nebuchadnezzar did. But here's the here's the 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 cruel truth about us. Our ease and our prosperity to what level it right whatever level it rises, no less numbs us to our need for the Lord than it did for Nebuchadnezzar. Like Jesus said in Matthew 19, 23 and 24, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's, it's more difficult for a rich man to feel need. You say, well, but I'm not rich like Nebuchadnezzar. Well, maybe not like Nebuchadnezzar, but go to many other places in the world. You're quite rich. John Piper said, even of those who wouldn't say they're rich, here's, here's what John Piper said. So very often, we feel no deep desire or need for God in our lives because we have nibbled so long, nibbled so long at the table of the world that we are stuffed with small things and have no room for the great. We may not be rich like Nebuchadnezzar and have all the, the, the biggest things, but we're stuffed with the small pleasures of this world. And, and it numbs us to what is really satisfying. It's like C.S. Lewis talked about the, the child who chooses to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot even imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. You know? So we're all like Nebuchadnezzar in a way. We find the life that we're comfortable with. We find the life that that we love and, and we become perfectly happy. Perfectly happy and content with that. I mean, seriously. And it's hard to, it is hard to feel a deep need for God's mercy and His grace when you're kicked back at the lake. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the lake. We're going to the lake on June 23rd. I'm just saying when we're in the middle of, of comfort, those are not usually the time that you're overcome by your sinfulness and need for grace. You know? So we're, we are in no less need of God's grace and mercy in those moments. We just don't feel it, right? And it, never, it just never crosses our minds, just as it never did Nebuchadnezzar's, as he was at ease and prospering in his palace. It's hard to feel any sense of need when everything is going well. And God knows that. So get that one right, because very often God's grace, because of that, comes to us in unexpected ways. He sent him another dream. As a part of his grace, he sent him another dream that shook him out of his ease and comfort. And we'll just recount the basics of the dream. He saw a, a giant tree that reached to the heavens, and it was beautiful, and it provided food for all. By the way, it's funny. Uh, just notice in that little part, like verses 10 through 12 and stuff, like all this language about, that, that, sound, that reminds you of language from the Garden of Eden and, uh, and even the Tower of Babel that reached to the heavens. But the tree there, and it was beautiful, delight to the eyes, it was good for food. 
And as soon as he saw that tree in his dream, he heard a voice saying, cut down the tree, down to the stump. Did you notice this when, I, when we were reading it uh, long about verse 15? Like, if, when you get to that, when you, you read the, the, the um, dream up to that point, okay, there's this tree, it's big, it's providing for everybody, and somebody comes and say, cut it down. Like, that's weird, but it's, that's not necessarily a scary dream at this point. Why was this dream so scary to him? Because long about verse 15 and 16, this tree is not called it, but starts to be called him and he and his. This tree is somebody. It's not just a thing, it's somebody. And I'm sure what alarmed Nebuchadnezzar is, he started wondering if that tree that was cut down was a picture of him. Who's the him? Who's the he? That's what he woke up thinking. Right? He was about to be cut down. That was, the, that was the message that God was sending to him. So Daniel later is going to tell him in his interpretation that, yeah, that tree is you. That's you. And this is, a, this is what God's about to do to you. He said, well, how is that a gracious message? Like, how is you're about to be cut down and go crazy? How is that not just a message of judgment? How is it a message of grace? Here's how we know it's actually a message of God's grace to him and not just judgment because of a couple of important things. First of all, in the, in the dream, the, the tree is cut down to the stump, but it's not uprooted. It's not uprooted. That's an important point that we're going to see in a minute. Why? That, that God was going to do something significantly difficult in his life, but he's not going to utterly destroy him. It would be for the good purpose of bringing him to the place that God wanted him to be. And we know that, but second of all, because the, the purpose of it all is stated in verse 17. To the end that to the end that the living, not just you, Nebuchadnezzar, but everybody under your umbrella, may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. And that would include Nebuchadnezzar. So God knew that Nebuchadnezzar's unrepentant and, and arrogant pride was destroying him. And it, and it and was setting, and, and it, was, it was the place he needed to be for God to do with him what he did with Pharaoh when he kept saying back in Exodus, I will get glory over Pharaoh. And he's going to get glory over Nebuchadnezzar. So God's going to graciously to Nebuchadnezzar do anything necessary to humble him, yeah, for his own good, but also to, to accomplish God's purpose to bring him to a place where he acknowledged God as Lord and as king. God, the point is, God sometimes has to teach us good lessons in hard ways. And that's not to say that every single difficulty that we face uh, is, is, is for a purpose like this, but God does often work like this, and that is just as much His grace to us as, as ease and comfort and good things and blessings. You know, that's one thing why, that's one reason why when you watch sort of prosperity preachers and Joel Osteen with his beautiful teeth um, <laughs> talking about when God's grace comes, what, you, it, it'll be your best life now. When you are eating grass like an ox, and you're stinky and nasty and your fingernails and hair are nasty. 
that's not your best life now. Sometimes God's grace brings really hard things into our life. And it's not your best life yet. But it will work toward that one day. You know? So a lot of times for our good, God often uh, interrupts our comfort to make us realize our need again. So that he can show himself faithful to us again and again and again. So that's a great lesson about God's grace in the early verses of this chapter. But as you keep reading, you not only see God's grace, but you also see his patience. So beginning in verse 19, God reveals to Daniel the, the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And it was exactly what he thought. The tree that was cut down, that's Nebuchadnezzar. Meaning God's about to do something really hard in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And we've already talked about a little bit about that. And, and, and again, we see God's gracious intentions in it. God, through Daniel, specifically tells Daniel in verse 25 that he would do this hard thing in Nebuchadnezzar's life only till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to who he will. So God calls on Nebuchadnezzar to repent and he tells him in verse 27 to break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed and that there may be perhaps a, a lengthening of your prosperity. So it's simply, a call for, it's simply a call for Nebuchadnezzar to repent. It's an opportunity to repent. And notice that last phrase there. That there may be, there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So again, it was cut down to the stump, but it was not uprooted. Like there's opportunity here for you to repent and your, your, your prosperity continue. So God was giving, again, an opportunity to repent and even promising blessing to him if he did. God, God's, God's grace is so clear in, in this chapter. But as I said, we also see his patience here. And I see that in one significant place in verse 29. Verse, verse 29, after Daniel had given him this, uh, the interpretation of this dream, verse 29 says, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the palace of Babylon. 12 months. A whole year passed by after this dream. It's a dream that alarmed him so much, and in fact, alarmed him for good reason, because it meant exactly what he thought it meant. A whole year went by. God allowed a whole year to go by for Nebuchadnezzar after that dream and the warning to him, and he gave him an entire year to act on the warning. A whole year. Like, God is so incredibly patient with us. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar had done some pretty wicked things. Throwing people in fires, <laughs> being one of them. And gave him a whole year to repent. But what did he do with it? We see God's patience, but what did he do with it? Well, we see what he did with it, and that teaches us something about our sinfulness. So God gave him a warning for an entire year to learn from it, to respond to it, and repent. But look at what Nebuchadnezzar does instead in verse 30. After a year had gone by, he says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my name. No change. No change at all. God had given him a whole, a whole year to change. 
And the only change that happened to him was growing harder and harder in his unrepentance. No change for the better. And again, think about all that God had already done in his life right before his very eyes. In chapter 1, God showed him his power when Daniel and his three friends only ate vegetables and only drank water and were as strong as the other guys. In chapter 2, it was Daniel being able to tell the dream and its interpretation when absolutely nobody else could. In chapter 3, it was the whole bit about the fire. Over and over and over again, already in the book, God had done jaw-droppingly amazing things before Nebuchadnezzar's very own eyes, and Nebuchadnezzar had even for moments seemed awed and amazed by God's power. And he would be amazed for a time, but eventually it would fade. You get him alarmed by a dream, a year goes by, he's forgotten all about it. Same thing here. God sends a frightening warning to him. Let a little time pass, let a year go by, and he's forgotten all about it. That's what we do. Guys, when y'all read, when y'all, when y'all read Scripture and you read it autobiographically, you've got to put yourself in Nebuchadnezzar's place, too. You've got to see yourself in Nebuchadnezzar, not just in Daniel. I am Nebuchadnezzar. Like, on my own, I'm Nebuchadnezzar. You let God do something amazing in my life, let a little time pass, and I've forgotten all about it. You know, God does something really great, sometimes even hard, and it gets our attention, and he gets our attention for a little bit, and we're serious about the Lord for a little while, but a little time passes, we've forgotten all about it. The point is that we see in, in, in Nebuchadnezzar here and God's interaction with him, We can't change ourselves. God can give us all the warnings. God can give us all the signs. And God can give us all the time in the world to change. And we don't change ourselves. We can't change ourselves. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't and didn't. And we can't and we don't. Is that just me just reasoning from Nebuchadnezzar's experience? If Nebuchadnezzar must have been mine? No. Scripture tells us that. Scripture tells us that. Like just one example in, in Romans 8. For the mind that Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. So an, an unrepentant person, a, a person who's not born again in Christ, that is a person who said is hostile to God, and they do not submit to God's law, indeed cannot cannot and that's why this story tells us that if we're gonna if we're gonna change at all if 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 a person changes at all to any sort of measure of acknowledgement of god certainly to repentance of him it's going to happen through god's sovereignty toward us and his ability to change anybody and that's a good thing So God did to Nebuchadnezzar what he warned that he would do when he sent him that dream a whole year earlier. A year later when Nebuchadnezzar was just walking around talking to himself and marveling at himself, marveling at his own kingdom. Verse 31 says, While the words were still in his mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you 
It is spoken, the kingdom has departed. And from, for a time, God caused him to go mentally crazy. Again, not to be taken. that This is how, always how God works. But it's what God did in Ebenezer's life to graciously bring him to the place where he needed him to be. It doesn't say how long he was like this. But the, the point was when he came to his, his, his senses, he immediately began praising God, whom he called the king of heaven. In fact, this, this chapter begins and ends with Nebuchadnezzar praising God. It began, verse 3, How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And it ends, especially, most famously, in verses 34 and 35, where he says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God graciously restored Nebuchadnezzar to prominence just as he had promised to do. God had called him to repent. Let a year go by. He didn't didn't repent. So God in his gracious, sovereign power brought Nebuchadnezzar to that place and humbled him. And that is telling me, that's like me telling one of my children, hey, don't play in the road. You might get run over. And when they don't listen to me, I go and I grab them and bring them out of the road. That's what God does with us. Every time a sinner comes to saving faith, that's what God has done. He's told us again and again. Um, Jesus said, Therefore repent or you will all likewise perish. We don't listen to that. Until God says, Repent or you will perish. The truth is, these are the last words we have from Nebuchadnezzar. And we're never necessarily led to the conclusion that he gave his life in submission to God. He recognized God was probably the most powerful of the many gods. He was impressed with his power. But here's here's the last point I'm going to make. These, as it teaches us about God's grace, his patience, our sinfulness, his sovereignty, these events are descriptive of the abundance of God's grace towards someone who never did come to saving faith in Christ or in repentance and faith to God however he understood him. And it's, and it's sort of a how much more kind of story. Like how much more is God gracious to those who have come to him in repentance and faith, right? God is, God is gracious to us. He's patient with us. And even when we are stubborn and stubborn in our sins, He can overcome all of that and melt the hardest heart set against him. It's a sweet chapter.